On behalf of the Walkley Foundation, I'm very pleased to introduce today's session, The Rally Cry, Stories That Inspire Change. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and Elders past and present. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Chris Warren and I'm the Federal Secretary of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, who've been the proud trustees of the Walkley Foundation for Excellence in Journalism since 1956. And the Walkley Foundation promotes excellence and innovation in Australian journalism through a year-round program of professional development, events and advocacy. Uh, the famed Walkley Awards program has more than 30 categories across all media platforms and to win a Walkley is recognised as the pinnacle of Australian journalistic achievement. Um, today we're here to discuss why a creatively story, beautiful to beautifully told, is now uh, just the beginning. Uh, a few clicks can be all it requires to start a snowball effect and send a story global overnight, catching millions of viewers and perhaps even inspiring activism and change. And how are social media and multimedia storytelling changing the face of journalism? Uh, now I'm very pleased to welcome, we've got a terrific panel to discuss all this and more. Uh, first on my immediate right uh, is Hal Crawford. Uh, Hal oversees the entire 9MSN contact division, content division, which encompasses all uh, over 80 content sites across the web portal, Bing and MSN products. He's been at the forefront of digital news and, and content creation in Australia since he joined 9MSN in 2006 as news editor. And in 2010, he was appointed head of news and in 2011, editor-in-chief. Uh, would you please welcome Hal Crawford. Uh, at the far end of the table is uh, Madhvi Pankania, uh, who's the producer for Guardian Australia. And after five years at The Guardian in London, she moved to Sydney to help launch the Australian edition of the website last year. She's worked on a number of digital projects for The Guardian, including the 2013 Walkley Award-winning Firestorm Multimedia Story, and she's currently project managing the rollout of the new responsive Guardian website with a special focus on Australia. Will you please welcome Mardi? <laughs> and finally, Patrick Abood, uh, who works across TV, radio, online, and the arts, and he currently reports, presents, and produces for the feed on SBS2. Uh, before going to the feed, uh, Patrick was a freelance features reporter for SBS Online and World News Australia and a cross-media reporter on Triple J's Hack. He recently co-hosted SBS2's coverage of the 2014 Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras and has directed numerous multimedia arts events at venues across Australia, including the Sydney Opera House. And in 2013, he was a finalist in the Walkley Multimedia Storytelling category. Please welcome Patrick. Now, what I'm hoping we'll do today is that we'll talk less about uh, the platforms and the technology uh, and more about the storytelling that it's in, both inspiring uh, and, uh, and, and, and changing. Uh, and perhaps I might start uh, with, uh, with you, Hal, uh, at 9MSN. Uh, at how, how does the preparation of a story, how much is the preparation of a story shaped for you or for your team by how you're going to present it? And how do you decide what's the best platform to, uh, to, to put it on? 
Um, thanks, Chris. Thanks for the introduction, too. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question because it allows me to lay out a couple of things that we take as accepted wisdom um, in digital news, which is that you write stories uh, and you publish stories in order um, to get traffic uh, if you're a commercial organisation in order to drive display revenue. Um, that's a business explanation of it, and of course that doesn't resonate with anyone's hearts. Um, and it's not why I'm a journalist, and I'm sure it's not why any of us are journalists. Um, but there is that essential element that if you publish something that you do hope that someone will read it, and the more people who read it, the better, really, generally. Um, so there's a whole uh, lot of uh, looking at instruments that we do to make sure that any story that we publish is getting uh, traffic or some traffic. Uh, and if it's not, it gets pulled. And that's just a traditional um, sort of, I call it um, traditional digital journalism. It kind of operates in that way. Uh, and what we've been seeing over the past three years is that on top of that, you're um, overlaying the idea that your story should also do well in social media. And for me, that's the interesting and new way of thinking. Um, and that could start with the genesis of the story. So right at the very beginning, you will think um, to yourself, is there any chance of this getting any sharing on uh, things like Facebook or Twitter? Uh, and because you know from previous experience what works, you then look at those subjects and, and ways of telling stories. So it is built in to the very um, beginning, before the story even uh, starts. So when you're drawing the story, one of the things you're bearing in mind is how will this play on Twitter? How will this play on Facebook? And does that then shape the way the story's told? Yeah, it, it, it in fact shapes what the story is from the very beginning. Can you give us an example? Uh, yes. Um, for example, um, animals uh, are well known to... <laughs> animals are well known to be, to be attractive to social audiences. Um, cats. So, Lots of cats. Yeah, yeah, cats actually, dogs actually seem to do a bit better, but cats, dogs, penguins. Um, so, you know, you, you might brief a reporter, um, okay, what is interesting in the animal world today? Let's think about, um, you know, uh, in fact, every day my features editor will look for animal videos. <laughs> uh, and that's just part of his job. We are serious journalists, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> those, guys are, those guys are serious. Um, it, I, I think the important thing is, uh, we're all laughing and I think that's super important um, because I don't have any illusions that, um, that the, cat, the video of the cat opening the fly screen uh, in a ninja-like move is going <laughs> to change the world, but I don't think that every day in every story we are changing the world. Um, and uh, it's an important part of entertaining the audience, um, which then gives you a platform to tell the important stories. Uh, so I think that's the good approach, which is do the frivolous and the important together, uh, and then you know you're not just a downer. You know you know the kind of people that you talk to at, at dinner parties and whatnot who can only be important. Um, they are not the most amusing people. Uh, so Margie, is the Guardian a cat or a dog paper? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a, a very a video that was very successful recently, which was of. Um, a cat saving a small young child from a dog. I don't know if you saw that, but that that um, was put up in Australia. I think it was an American. It was American footage, and it just 
it did incredibly well internationally. Um, and we, I mean, you know, we saw that piece of footage and we thought, oh, we just want to see it. And we knew that it would do well before it even was put up. We knew that it was perfect for things like Facebook and Twitter to share it. And it was also quite a short clip. And it feeds into a lot of what people love about animals. And people love to talk about which is, you know, what animals better, a cat or a dog, a cat person. Otherwise known as clickbait. <laughs> well, to what extent does, but to, and that leads to the next question, to what extent does that kind of clickbait actually work to bring people in and then look, read other things on your site? I mean, the rest of the website um, has to work well enough for you to be able to entice your readers to click on other things, so to give them other content that they might be interested in, and there's very clever ways that you can do that. So if, if your website infrastructure is set up well, or if you're linking out to other pieces from the site, from that article, that um, video, then actually people do go and go on and read other things. I mean, it's very interesting what Hal was saying about um, actually thinking about social media before you, you're writing the content. And for us, I would say there's, that's, that's quite mixed. A lot of the stuff that we do, we write, um, you know, and we don't even think about social media. We'll think, well, we have to write this piece. We have to write this piece because it's covering journalism and it's a serious part of journalism and it's important to put it up on the side. Um, and we do those pieces, and we know that some pieces that we publish every day won't get shared at all. And we know that other pieces that we write will get shared instantly. And we have a pretty good, a pretty good idea of what those pieces will be. But I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say there's always things that we write because they know that it will be shared. Generally, we get reporters to write stories or um, journalists to write stories, and the things that make it clickable will actually be the headline, and that's what the subjector does. You know, he will make the story that someone's written catching or have this incredible headline that people want to share. And is Twitter kind of almost a form of headline in that <coughs> instance? You don't have very much space in Twitter, so you need to be able to have something that's very sharp and catching. And what about the feeds? That's kind of a different market, different... Yeah, the television. Does anyone watch television anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for giving me a job. Um, I think for us, it's, it's a really interesting... Sorry? Ah, good. Good, good. Um, I mean, television is never going to be superfluous, I guess, but for us, it's actually quite the antithesis of what Mavi was saying. Um, we have to really create content that we know is going to work online because most of our viewers, in fact, I think three or four times more of our viewers we get online than we do actually watching the show as appointment television at 7.30 every night. So in our pitch meetings, we're constantly discussing, you know, this idea works great, it will look amazing on television, but how will it work online? And, you know, how shareable is it? And what else can we connect it to? And what can we pull out of it in order for it to have other facets that perhaps you can't cover in the TV story? So... At the moment, the way we work is we don't just make television. We make television content, but we also make content that's going to be transferable to the online space as well, and also you know, filter through social media channels. So it's a constant um, consideration for us, I guess. And if, from what you're saying, what three-quarters of your audience are effectively time-shifting. They're watching it at a different time to the broadcast. Yeah. How does that shape what kind of stories do you, you follow up as well? Well, it's, again, it's interesting. Initially, when I initially... Um, like, pitched the concept for the show, it was, it was something that I called a modular program where essentially you're making little bits of content that have to work as standalone bits of content, but they also need to work seamlessly as a television program. So that 
it was kind of flipped. We weren't making television, we were making an online show for the television, if that makes sense. Um, so in terms of the way you know, we pitch and what ideas get up and don't, that is a huge consideration. And it does affect the way you creatively decide to tell the story because there are some things that work really well on the television that might not necessarily work very well online. People's attention span online is very short. So, you know, a, a long-form TV story, um, it's impossible to put that up online and expect people to stay there for 15 minutes watching it. So when you produce a story, for example, that is long-form, you might do a re-editor of it that's two and a half minutes long and you'll get... 250,000 people clicking that online and they might not have ever even seen the long-form version on television and you might only have like 50,000 viewers watching on television. So, yeah, it's a really important consideration for us. And is the TV almost like, a, or the TV broadcast time, almost like a, a promotional piece for the online? Absolutely. Rather than the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, I mean, if, you, if you ever watch the show, like, we always pull stuff from social, so... You know, at the beginning of, in the afternoon, we'll put a, a question up on Facebook, for example, that connects with one of the stories that we're running, and that's a way to kind of engage people to watch the show. But at the same time, it's also a way for them to then share the content that we put up after the show is off air. Um, so there's a really kind of clear connection point there. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the other trends we're seeing, we were just talking about this earlier, is that the globalisation of some news voices, and we've seen obviously the Guardian launch in Australia, um, the Mail Online. Uh, launch here and you've had some engagement with the, with the mail online process uh, how does that how, how does an organisation like that get that both global and local sense, how do you write stories that are both globally relevant and locally relevant um, so the idea of uh, um, local global um, is one I think Marty would have some pretty interesting perspective on this um, I don't think anyone's really uh, cracked local so, to me, it's more the opposite question because, uh, for example, 9MSN, the homepage that I run, speaks with an Australian voice, so a national voice, and that's our, uh, that's our aim, um, to, to, to speak to Australia. Um, and to a lesser extent, some people try to speak to the world. Um, I don't think anyone's totally successful in speaking to the whole world from a, from a single homepage. Um, but actually, I think the challenge is not speaking to large amounts of people. It's, it's working out the business model um, that can uh, create a successful business at the local level, digitally. So um, even places like uh, SMH Sydney Morning Herald, which has such a, an entrenched audience here in Sydney, naturally, uh, you, you see it becoming a national brand. So... That seems to be the scale at which things work well in Australia. Um, and Marthy's uh, team is trying to crack it for Australia, and, and they're doing a great job. Um, the Daily Mail is also doing a great job here, and they are trying to crack it. What they have is a team of editors working on an Australian homepage. That it says at the top of the page, it says Daily Mail, or it says The Guardian, or in this case, Guardian Australia. And that is only served up to people who go to the Guardian address from Australia. So what you've done is you've created a national voice. The question is, for, for how, do you, how does it work for communities? No one's got it right yet. Marby, how, how successful have you, do you think the Guardian Australia has been to be the Australia rather than the Guardian? Well, um... When we first came over here, um, you know, there was a lot of thought about how are we going to be successful in Australia? What content do we write? Do we keep this strong international Guardian brand or actually 
quite UK-focused brand that people in Australia are reading, um, and how much of that content, how much new content do we produce that's got an Australian focus? And not just national, but how much content do we need to produce that's local? And all of that with a very small team, because as probably Hal would know, you need a lot of resources to be able to cover issues locally or be able to do things at the local level. Um, and so one of the big areas that we invested in was political, Australian political coverage. And actually, that seems to have brought so many new people to our site because people here are interested in reading about what's going on in their country, in politics, more so than any other subject, it seems. So we've, we're able to blend what we're very lucky to be able to do is to take all the great content that's produced back home in the UK, which has a much bigger office than we have in Sydney, all the great content that's produced in the UK, globally, and also from our American office, and mix that up with stuff that we've got in Australia, and have great editors here who are able to choose which stories to put on our homepage, which stories are the ones people are going to read. Um, primarily that will be the Australian stuff, but they also want to read about what else is going on in the world. So we have a, we, we're in a really fortunate position where we can mix those two things up together. With the material you're, you're taking from overseas into the Guardian Australia site, is how much of that's automated and how much of it is a conscious choice each day about what goes on Guardian Australia? It's all a conscious decision. Right. It's always um, our editors deciding which content they want to put up and what they think is valuable for the reader. And do you shape the... Is there, is there the ability to, for example, the material getting from the United States to shape it more for an Australian audience or say, we want a piece about that for the Australian audience? It's a good question. It's a good question because we have a lot of arguments between the offices about wanting content from other sites and saying, mm. actually, you, you focus that and it's, it's just got all these UK references and we can't use it in Australia. So we have a lot of arguments between different offices about which content we should be using. Um, Maybe do you rewrite? Do the yeah. Australian yarns get rewritten for the English market, UK market? They don't, no. And um, we've had a, we've had an incredible week actually because two um, of our most read stories globally have been Australian this week. So, um, and so thanks to Tony. Thanks. All thanks to Tony. <laughs> <laughs> He's had a brilliant week too. <laughs> no shortage of things to write about Tony. So it's great when that happens. We're really proud, and, and people seem to want to read about Australia as well. So it's great to have this content produced in Australia by great Australian writers that people all over the world are reading. What do you think gives the Guardian, the Australian version of the Guardian, distinctly Australian voice? Is it just you said politics? Obviously, is a topic area that's quite popular. But what I makes mean, it Australian stories. Australian stories. We we write about what we think Australians want to read about. So we will commission news. Features, you know, we're covering Sydney Festival. We're running a live blog. We're doing lots of um, cultural festivals across across the country. Um, so we're writing about things that we hope that you all want to read about. And um, I mean, politics is a huge part of that. And I think it was very important to crack politics when we we're over here. But but there's so many other things that that people are interested in. And hopefully, the longer that we're in this country, we'll be able to branch out a bit more in other areas. Uh, Patrick, to what extent does the feed try to just be Australian or to attract a global audience? We don't. You must have a global audience. The simple answer to that is we don't try and be Australian at all. But we, I think our kind of brief is to be as broad as possible. And in the television landscape, that's, again, it's really important because it's very difficult to 
get a sense of who's actually watching your show. And we're very new. We've only been on air for... Well, we had our first birthday early this week, actually, so it's a bit less than a year. Right on a year. Um, I think for us, it's more about tapping into things that aren't being covered in the mainstream. It's kind of accessing things that are a bit more on the periphery of mainstream society, um, telling stories that are from different subcultures, whether that's you know, local, national or international. It doesn't really matter where it's coming from. It's more about why is it different and why should we be telling the story? And we should be doing it because no one else is doing it. That's the kind of thought process I think that we go through. And I think in doing that, if you watch the show from like Monday to Friday, the mix of stories, um, you could be producing the show in any country in the world, essentially. It's not distinctly Australian at all. And is that from kind of a, a bit part of an SBS aesthetic, if you like? Yeah, of course. You know, SBS is all about diversity and it's about, you know, talking to communities that are from all parts of the globe. So yeah, it's definitely because it's part of the SBS charter that's kind of filtered down into our brief. Uh, and what portion of your, audio, of your online audience does come from overseas? Um, do you know? It's hard, to, know. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, the, we do get figures and stuff, but we don't spend a huge amount of time breaking that stuff down purely because we're still trying to get the yeah. formulas right, being so new. Um, but, you know, an example, I guess, is when something goes up online that is very clickbaity, as um, Hal said before, you know... Um, I didn't use the term. <laughs> <laughs> I think you used the term clickbait. I I guess, you know, if it's something that is not from Australia, it's funny that I think a lot of the comments that we get on the videos are from Australian viewers. And you can see that because you can connect to their social media and stuff and yeah. you know where they're at. That's always interesting. So, yeah, it's hard to tell for us at the moment. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is, is the use of Twitter. A lot, lot of you, a number of you have talked about Twitter as a way of attracting uh, people to your site. To what extent do you use Twitter or is Twitter useful as a medium in its own right, as a way of telling a story. A lot of stories only need 140 characters. Yeah, um, I, I just correct a misconception. Twitter doesn't drive much traffic mm. uh, for most sites. Uh, it's, it's more of a, um, a tool, a, a journalist-facing tool uh, inside the newsroom. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, because you might get higher percentages of your traffic from Twitter. But um, for us, it would be well under 1%. Uh, so not actually a significant amount and driving from tra uh, Twitter, and that means people see the tweet and they click on uh, the story link and they yeah. come to your site. Yeah. Um, but Twitter is amazing, uh, and all of the significant stories that involve a breaking news element of recent times ha that I can think of have broken on Twitter um, before they've been verified and then um, uh, broadcast by someone else. Uh, and when you think about that in the context of newsrooms 10 years ago, mm. that's a massive change. It's a huge shift. In, in yeah. fact, the, the big decision you have to make as an editor now is when to pull the trigger on the story. Mm. It's usually uh, you don't have it first, which is, it, it is nice, obviously, if you break it, that's wonderful. Um, but say something massive happens. Uh, you see someone on Twitter say that, you know, Jeff Goldblum is dead, right? And, uh, and you're like, is that true? And that's the big question that you have to answer. Uh, and it's, that's an existential question as an editor. Or, uh, as an editor. <laughs> is he dead? I mean, you, if you hear he's dead now, what do you do about it? How do you verify that? I think the, ups, the upshot of something like Twitter, I mean, Twitter is, much like Hal said, it's you know, less, less than 1% for us as well in terms of 
bringing people to the show, but I think a really great example of um, talking about creative storytelling and it empowering people is if you think of things like the uprisings in the Middle East. I mean, Egypt is an amazing example of how um, Twitter was... People really mobilised and utilised Twitter in, in an incredible way to basically tell their own stories. And that had a huge impact on us journalists in terms of the way we tell that story. So, in essence, that kind of, you know, shifts to start talking about citizen journalism and how social media in that way does... It creates a whole new paradigm in terms of coming up with creative ways to share information and tell but, stories. But this question of verification is important. In the Middle East, I think Bashar al-Assad's been dead a hundred times on Twitter yeah, already. Yeah, of course. Uh, how, do you, how do you verify? When do you make the decision, I know enough about this to, to believe it? What are, what are the kind of things that go through your mind? That's a very tricky question. Um, and I think, you know, Hal's probably grapples with that more than I do because I have editors above me making those calls. But I will never go to my producer, my supervising producer, and say, hey, we need to run with this story tonight because, look, this person said this on Twitter. You'd need to, you know, go through a whole series of, of checks and really in-depth research to, to go with that until you, have, like, you can trigger, fire the gun off. Well, and it really depends who the person is as well who's saying it. Uh, yeah, I mean, some things you know are, are true straight away because the State Department verifies it or what, mm. or not. Um, but the, the fascinating thing is for us, we've become more cautious. And the reason for that is a business one, which is we've realised we are not going to be quicker than Twitter. Um, so we have to be more reliable. Mm. And we've got a, I've got a kind of a legalistic thing in my head. Um, you know one of those crazy legalistic phrases which sound precise but aren't? Which is overwhelmingly likely. <laughs> this is overwhelmingly likely to be true. Okay, publish. Yeah, it's, it's actually, that's a good point. I mean, the way we write, Murphy's probably got an interesting take on this as well. You know, your selection of your word choice is really important when you're following stories that do break on social media because accuracy is key to what we do. So, you know, saying that something is, is it, it's a very rare thing these days. You know, it's potentially or possibly mm. or... And, the, and reports is your friend. Reportedly. Call them big report. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. We actually do, you know, we, we really use Twitter a lot. Our journalists are on Twitter all the time, they're following stories. Um, if someone's, you know, a, repeat, a reputable news site and they're tweeting something or there's someone that tends to tweet, or you, you expect them to only tweet things that are true, you do go along with it. And the, the great thing about Twitter is it is kind of reported speech, especially if you're looking, if you're looking to say, so-and-so has said this about this story. If you put that into your story, you know, say we're, we're doing a review of, of Q&A, we can actually grab all the different things people are saying on Twitter, and we can embed the tweets, and we can say, this is what people on Twitter were saying about Q&A. And that, and that becomes your article, because people want to know what people on Twitter were saying. And that's not always a, this is a news story and it's breaking. It's, um, you know, it's just a roundup of what everyone's saying on Twitter. Well, The Guardian was really the home of the blog, was the originator of the live blog, wasn't it? So I suppose Twitter's been Not a great... Long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Only in internet years. Uh, the, uh, so I suppose Twitter's been a great content creator for that process as well, hasn't it? Absolutely. So a live blog is just looking at what's, what's going on everywhere and then the social media platforms, and particularly Twitter, because it's, it's mostly public. You know, most people want to share openly what they're thinking. Um, and most people tend to sometimes say very controversial things on Twitter, so it's great to, have to be able to pull those into our stories and our live blogs. 
particularly late at night. The, um, so would, you, would, would the Guardian also apply kind of an overwhelmingly likely test? On it depends what the news story is. Um, I mean, you know, yes, we, uh, we, will, um, we will always check our sources and make sure that someone has confirmed what your news story is before we, we, we can say, or before we go ahead and write a news article. It's very rare that you'd quote someone from Twitter. Mm. You know, you, you might attribute something and include their tweet, but you'd very rarely quote yeah. something someone said on Twitter. Unless it was 100% verifiable. So when you say only 1% come to you from Twitter, where do most people come from? Um, well, people come from a variety of places, and it, it definitely depends on site. Um, I have a lot of sites um, within the network, uh, and each one of them has a different profile. Uh, and different sites get different amounts from Google, say, for instance. But the main players are a little bit from Twitter, a fair chunk from Facebook, quite a lot um, from Google. And these, then, these are scientific measures, though. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a bit like my uh, <laughs> criteria for publishing. Um, and um, the majority, in, in the case of 9MSN, the majority of people come direct to the homepage or direct to the story, um, one way or another. Um, for example, there's a whole bunch of email sharing that goes on that we really don't have much of an idea about how to quantify. Uh, and that just shows up as someone appearing at your site, but mm. you can't really tell any more than that. Mm. But is there, there's an increasing trend, I think it's true, isn't it, that people are looking for stories, not for sites, that so the idea of the front page is less significant yeah. than it was. Yeah, so I, I think uh, Marvi, uh, I think you mentioned that uh, Marvi was engaged in uh, product development right at the moment, and I think uh, it's, a, it's a truism in uh, web page development that your most important page in the site is your article page. That is the, that is the uh, page on which you have the, the main text of the article, where the video will appear, uh, where the slideshow is housed or whatever. And because the majority of your audience is arriving on that page, that's where you need to make the magic happen. Uh, and your home page, you should be thinking about in a secondary way. Uh, is that the approach you take it? I mean, it's absolutely right to say the article page is where the majority of your readership lands when they first appear on the site because people are people are finding it through Google, people are finding it through Facebook. They're, they are the two biggest referrers to the website. And so most people will actually enter the Guardian through an article page. And so that's where you need to make the magic happen. But the network, what we call the network front, or the front landing page, um, we still have loyal readers going to that landing page every day, and it's still very much a brand page. You know, you want it to look guardian, you want it to look like whatever news site you're representing, you want it to say something to the reader, and you and people do come there and want to see what the stories are the, of the day are. So, I would, I would say it's true, people go to the article page, but the front page is still incredibly important, particularly to people inside the organisation. They have but is that is that a bit why we do front pages because we've always done front pages enough people still go to the front page and drive traffic to stories that it's important to make sure that the front page is will it always be who can tell the future who knows <laughs> and I suppose you're saying your, your programme is structured the same way but that people can come in directly to, to an individual story. And is that how most of them, a lot of your online viewers come in? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if someone shares one story on Facebook, you know, and that brings them to our site or our blog, they'll stay and look at other stories and then continue mm. sharing those. Mm. And is Facebook the, the major um, source now? 
Yeah, I would say so. Actually, we get more kind of hits on our own blog than we do on Facebook. That's purely because we don't actually have our own Facebook page. We're on the <laughs> SBS2 Facebook page, so we don't actually have an pro individual program page. Right. I think if we did, that would change dramatically. Um, but at the moment, a lot of our traffic comes through the actual program blog. And that's because us reporters are also constantly putting stuff out on social media all day to drive people there. The organisation itself does that as well. Mm. Why don't we talk a bit about... Um, because the other one, we've talked a lot about the truncation of journalism through Twitter or through mm. Facebook. Um, there's been a parallel trend, I think, of the growth of long-form journalism or slow-form mm. journalism. Um, My passion. <laughs> and is that... Because that's, I guess, what you try to be doing, isn't it? Try to do long-form journalism in a yeah. short world. I think, I think it's kind of a nice segue to talk a little bit about also how, you know, new technology or, you know, multimedia storytelling has changed the way we actually work as journalists. Mm. And it's, really, it's incredibly exciting for me as a journalist because, um, you know, I'm someone who thinks of a story as a multifaceted thing. So there are so many angles in one story and you can only ever cover off, you know, one or two of them in a TV story. So for... That medium, it works really well, but then there are other things you can do that expand the story out so much. And being you know, in the online space, you, if you click on an article now, it's not just 600 words of text. It's text, it's Twitter embeds, it's video embeds, it's photo essays, and that's just one story. So we also think like that in terms of creating TV stories, as I said earlier. Um, and the other thing is, it also allows us to tell TV stories in a way that we couldn't before, and I think... I can talk about a, you know, a personal example. Um, early last year, I did some interviews with a girl in Afghanistan who essentially, the only way I could communicate with her was on Skype. And all I ended up with was these clandestine interviews um, that were you know, 30, 40 seconds each in length. And it was incredible content. This girl, she was basically the only graffiti artist in Afghanistan. And the Taliban was after her family. Um, they had attacked her family. They had threatened to throw acid in her face. Basically, she was on death row, um, but she was really adamant about telling a story, and she was doing it through graffiti, so she was standing up against the oppression of women through street art. Um, and I found her, basically, by looking at an image on the net. I clicked the image, and I kept clicking, and it basically led me to her, and I found her on Skype, and she randomly answered to the Skype call. So it literally happened like that. That wouldn't have happened even, you know, five, six years ago, in that way. So... Um, I ended up doing interviews with her and I had this content and I went to my producer and he just laughed at me. He's like, what, what are we going to do with this? This is like a shitty Skype interview. <laughs> um, and then I spoke to the graphics guy and we got our heads together and I said, well, look, why don't we, why don't we recreate her environment in, a, in, in graphics, in three-dimensional graphics, and then we can produce this kind of two- or three-minute piece that we can play on the telly and we can put up online. And I think if people see it online, they'll share it and it'll go crazy. That's exactly what happened. So in terms of the creative process of putting a story together, you know, social media and those new technologies and this idea of multimedia content has massively changed that process of creatively coming up with a way you're going to put the story together. And it's really exciting. Well, I, I think an interesting, um, interesting thing about that piece of yours, Patrick, uh, and something that you mentioned was that when you went to your producer, he said, how are we going to use this shitty quality Skype phone call? Mm. Um, and the requirements of polish of normal broadcast TV are not there online. Mm. Uh, we, we find that again and again that a raw piece of video will actually do better online than a, a, a package. Uh, you know, a, a piece of TV that's all got intros and outros and voiceovers and things. 
And in fact, um, if you put up just the, the raw uh, footage of, of whatever it is, in this case, a telephone interview, um, you can do just as well or, or better. In this case, though, you did actually polish it with your amazing 3D surrounding. Yeah, it was an, it's a you know, pretty extreme example. You wouldn't always have the time to do that, but because the story was so compelling, obviously we put those resources into making it look really good. But it, you're, you're right. I mean, essentially, we could have also um, not run a TV story and basically created a blog and run a little promo at the end of the show saying, head to the blog and check the story, and just put up the raw Skype interviews. We also could have done that, and probably would have got as you know, equal amount yeah. of views, or maybe more, I don't know. But probably you wouldn't have been allowed to broadcast it. No, no. definitely not. Yeah. Uh, is that quality sense, is that, a, is that changing though? Are people getting higher demands, or, or are people demanding higher quality on, in, in the online uh, Not at all, not at all. Um, I, I think people like the idea of... Um, unmediated stuff. So in fact you might even, you know, as a, as a real kind of, I mean you can just put stuff out there um, and people will consume it. Uh, in the case of video it's often because it's in the surrounding of an article to give it context. Yeah. If you think about what you're doing on a broadcast um, transmission, uh, if you just have a stream of video you turn on the TV, there's no context. That's never the case in an article. That's the beauty of the online space, yeah. though, too, and that's why I guess you know the idea of multimedia journalism is so exciting because you can pull out all those facets and extend and extend and extend and link to other things. It's endless, essentially. You give people a really good sense of where the stories come from, where it's going. Well, there's a change. And this is, I guess, one of my interests. That in the 20th century, 80 percent of what, or 90 percent of what any journalist would have done would have been a five, six hundred word pyramid news story, and now it's all totally different because. Although we still kind of often tend to, I'm particularly interested about how the Guardian manages this, that we still often tend to default to that uh, kind of approach rather than using the benefits of size to tell stories at greater length or in greater, greater detail. Are you saying that people still writing 500, 600 word news stories where they should be doing? Either 140 words or 10,000 words. To... Well, actually, um, we, we write quite a different rate, different size range of stuff um, and we do a lot of embedding videos um, and you know we will do those quick short pieces and those blogs um, but we'll also invest in doing slightly longer feature pieces and we, st we still have the Guardian newspaper in the UK we still are writing features for the newspaper and those features will also still go online um, and although as Hal says some of the things that do incredibly well are those short sharp um, unprocessed looking video pieces or news pieces that seem to be done very, very quickly, there is still also a huge space online for the stuff that you can spend money and time time on, and that it's multimedia. You know, the, the Firestorm stuff that we created when we launched, um, the stuff that the New York Times is doing, the stuff that SBS has done in the past, it's, it's valuable to invest your resources in those, because even though they're not going to be as instantaneously shareable, they're going to they're going to last a lot longer in they your online space, yeah. um, and you'll find that people are still looking at those stories and documentaries a year, two year, three years down the line. I think it's the difference between you know being part of the news cycle and following that news cycle day to day, and then breaking away from that when you can, and you know giving people I guess a bit of an escape into some other world through stories that aren't necessarily attached to that news cycle. Which they may come to in their own time as yeah. well. That, that's... They're a bit more timeless. Mm. And you, you're kind of saying to the reader, 
when they come into that story and they see that it's in a different format and it's got videos and audio and lovely, beautiful, beautifully written text and images, we're asking you, we're asking the reader to invest time in those pieces. And so they, they know that we've, we've taken a lot of time to, to do something for them. And I think the reader does, does appreciate that. And does that mean that you'll, you'll get people spending more time on your site with that, with that detail? With those kind of long form type of type of sites, and does, is there, does that then mean they're more likely to come back to your site? Do you think, or you don't you don't know the answer to that? I mean, I don't have any data that, mm. that will be able to say yes or no. But um, you know, if someone's taken the time to read a piece or, or look at some interesting digital innovation, I mean, that's the other thing. You know, anyone can just put an article up onto their site. Mm. Um, it takes. It shows that you're part of that digital space if you're doing something new, if you're using your developers to pull together a video um, and, you, and your user is interacting in a way that they wouldn't interact if they were just reading an article. At the same time, I mean, there are new publications that are really exciting that focus just on long form and, and, and really using that multimedia space in really creative ways. There's a site called Narratively, which is relatively new. Um, it's based, run out of New York and essentially it's, it's almost, I think a good way to describe it is kind of like going to an art exhibition where you see lots of different things that you don't really understand at first glance but you've got to really kind of delve into them to get a good grasp of what they're about and it, it's about good curation. So that site runs on, we've got all these elements, these multimedia elements we can use, how can we kind of put them all together and curate them in a way that creates a beautiful kind of seamless series of stories that connect to one idea or one central theme. So again, that's another change in the way stories are told. And this is journalism, not as a not as a daily news no, thing, but these, as a these are like long a, form, you know, a catalogue of stories. Really. Yeah, We're either told through pure, purely just illustration, sometimes mm. photographs, sometimes video, mm. and and data. Sometimes mm. you can tell a story more simply with data than you can mm. in, in written word. You know, we, we very recently did a gay rights interactive around the world. Um, which countries have the best? situation for, you know, for gay people, you know, you look and there's, um, you know, there's three or four ideas, there's three or four um, areas and you um, go through every single country in the world, the reader can actually click on an area and see which country it is, what the rights are like, and at, at a glance you can actually see across the entire world which continents and which countries are better yeah. to live in. I think data journalism is the fastest growing facet of journalism worldwide and, and that's, that's a sweeping statement but I think it's pretty and, and by data journalism you, you mean journalism that kind of unpacks the story out of out of the it's you know, set of, it's, out of the data set it's graphic driven yeah. so you know you can basically you know any issue any hot issue in the world you could click on any one number of media sites in the world and see a simple infographic that tells you what you need to know in a matter of seconds and you're gone you're in and you're out. So it's very shareable, it's easy access to information, it's visually stimulating. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into producing that stuff, um, but I think the impact of it is really quite strong. And is that right, Helen? You, you find it also? Uh, oh, no question, the impact is strong. I think uh, as, a, as an editor and, and putting on uh, my more business-like hat, uh, what concerns me about um, anything called data journalism is that it can be uh, a great way of hiding a lot of work uh, behind a, a single link. And, um, you know, if uh, journalists come up to me with a proposition for a multimedia um, extravaganza, <laughs> I'm, I'm very suspicious. Michael Jason uses uh, that word with me a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
And um, it sounds like a great way of you know doing nothing for two weeks and then producing one link uh, on the homepage. And that's I can't help but that's the way I think. Um, and then you know someone pulls something out of the bag, and, and in the case of Marvie, for example, gets a Walkley for it. Um, then your bet's paid off. But that is that is a long shot. And I think uh, I think to touch on something that is a bit of a a worry. There are all these mechanisms to tell us what works in the short term. What will build your audience over the next two days, uh, even month? Uh, but there is no metric, there is no mechanism at the moment to tell you what's in your long-term interest. So uh, if you are building, um, a, say, you want to build a reputation for uh, great investigative journalism, that is something that has a lead time of, I would say, two to three years. Um, how, how do you get a business plan for that? Well, is there even a long... In a, in a world of sharing, is there even a long-term business model or are you only ever as good as your last story? No, there is definitely a, a long-term business model. It's just that you actually have to trust... Um, you have to trust your instincts about the business a bit more. For example, um, the, the value of mastheads is increasing, it's not decreasing. <laughs> Uh, you know, the New York Times, I don't know if you guys managed to have a look, they released a report, they didn't release they it, did. it leaked. <laughs> um, uh, but a really, really fascinating document, and it's all about the equity in the New York Times brand and, and maintaining that over years. Um, with The Guardian, it's the same thing, so you don't expect yeah, but, to pay off the next But the day. New York Times would say that about their own brand, wouldn't they? I mean, is, it, is that actually yeah. real, though? I think it's very real. I mean, it's hugely, hugely valuable, that that brand and that, uh, that equity doesn't mean it can't be undermined, um, but that's their value. I think we have time for a few questions. If anyone want to ask our panel, any questions? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I want to ask about Firestorm because I thought it was amazing. Um, is there perhaps commercial reasons why we can see more of it? Because, I mean, that was incredible. It was the share of everywhere. Um, I mean, that's definitely a reason. It, the, the amount of time and resources that it takes, as I was saying, into making something like that, um, you, it's not something that you can sit down and do every day. You have to really pinpoint which, which projects you want to do um, and whether you've got the resource to do them. And that, we've done a few this year. I think we've probably done three or four in Australia, um, some in our other offices too, but... It just depends on resource and when you have time. And, and, and if there's a great story, I mean, that's the other thing that um, I'm not sure when these guys have been talking. If there's a story and it's a big story, for example, the NSA, if you're doing a story in the NSA and you want to do something that will really pull together all your information, then an interactive or something like we did with Firestorm or a slightly different format tells the reader that this is something that's valuable. Uh, Firestorm also used a lot of resources in the UK as well, didn't it? So... Well, it, it was the benefit of being part of a global organisation rather than just a local organisation. Absolutely. I mean, there was, um, there was a lot of... I mean, we were only out here for a very short period of time. Um, lots, of, lots of people in the office in Sydney were part of it because, I mean, essentially you can't run something that's about Australia and, and with the editors and everyone that's editing here out of London. But at the same time, we have... A, we're very lucky that we've got some very experienced people who work with developers back home in the UK who we can go to for advice and ask how to do things. So it, it definitely was valuable having office in London. I think it's also, just to 
add to that, it's also about what the audience wants a lot of the time. And I think depending on the organisation that you're working for and what the brief is, that has a huge impact. I think that's what you were asking before in terms of it being commercial or not. Um, something like Firestorm, which was an incredible project, like that has a much longer lifespan over a longer period of time as opposed to something that's a short form, you know, very clickable story that is forgotten about in 24 hours. So you might not hear a lot about it when it, you know, it launches, you hear a bit about it and then it sort of dies off, but then, um, you know, three months down the track, it might pick up again and have another life afterwards. So that's the kind of difference. And I guess that talks to the difference between being in a new cycle and being pulled out of that to make something that's a lot more long form where you get a lot of depth. Too long. <laughs> um, um, I think it was in about over six months, but there, there was lots of different um, parts of that process. So you had the, the writer and um, the filmmaker come out to Australia or, or um, different people working on stuff in Australia over a very long period of time, and then you've got the process of voting down that material. And then you're working with developers and audio producers and editors, um, and they're all working on different things at the same time. Yeah, it took it took a long time to do to pull everything together because even at the end end of that process there are things that you might need to change. I mean, you're pulling together so many different informations from so many different departments working together that it's always going to require a lot of time to kind of thresh out all the things that you didn't expect. Yes, over here. Um, how's the garden make money? <laughs> I mean, compared to say a male. The question was, how does the Guardian make money? Um, well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer this question. Good journalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we've always said that um, for us it's more important to be able to share information publicly with the reader than it is to put up a paywall because you know we don't think that that is not that is not fundamentally what we want to be doing journalistically. We want to be able to create stuff for people to read. Um, there's lots of ways we're looking at expanding our revenue model. Um, we still have you know we still have a lot of income coming from our paper in the UK and actually digital revenue is rapidly growing all the time. I mean it's getting bigger and bigger and in, particularly in Australia which does seem slightly further behind than the UK and even the US in terms of moving away from traditional publishing, advertising onto the digital media landscape. If you have a look at it in the last few years, it seems to have rocketed. You said to me, sorry, did I misunderstand you? You're a bit doubtful about the growth of digital advertising or digital dollars? No, on the contrary. Oh. I think, you know, it, it, that space is huge. I mean, you can, any of you guys can make a YouTube video and put it up online and if you're clever, generate an income from it. Like, that's how the digital, how much the digital space has changed. There are so many algorithms and, you know, back-end things that are happening that we don't even know about that actually generate income. And I think there are now gazillions of digitally, purely digitally focused ad agencies that you know, help publications like The Guardian and other people make money. So it's a huge area. Uh, the Guardian, of course, also is, has a trust that, uh, that supports it. Yeah. Hi, I'm just wondering um, how much space do you think there is for new players in um, digital media? So we've got the Hoopla, Mamma Mia, a website I work for, which is the new daily, 
the Daily Mail, The Guardian. It's becoming very crowded, and I'm just wondering if there's room for everyone in Australia. The internet's never going to break. <laughs> so they say. But it's kind of audience share. So it's very sort of finite population, and suddenly, you know, at least half a dozen websites that have emerged in the last 12 months. I think it's a great question mm. because it, it, it draws attention to the fact that the most important um, currency is attention uh, and actually you've got to scale your audience if you want to make money from display advertising, um, which, uh, you know, the, the, the Guardian carries advertising, uh, as all my sites do, and uh, in, in, in our case we're profitable, our, our audience is big enough to generate enough money to make a profit and sustain a business. Uh, that is, is that the case for the top 10 sites in Australia? Uh, there, is, there is a limit and it's certainly not 100 sites. So uh, I think yes, absolutely, it's a ferociously competitive uh, environment in Australia at the moment and uh, only, only the biggest sites will survive. But uh, isn't there in, in mainstream news, sorry. Isn't there another limit too, which I think is the point you're getting at, which is that the audiences are the finites. There's only a certain number of people in the country or the world, and they've only got a certain number of uh, minutes in the day to... And consumption's to going up on just about every medium. Mm. Uh, so you don't, think, you don't think we're anywhere near the limit of people's patience, for want of a better word? Uh, no, I mean, the, the market for news is bigger now. That, and I'm a news person, you can tell, but the market is bigger than it has ever been for news. People are consuming news more hours of the day. Uh, so I'm very much an optimist. Uh, and with Patrick, you know, there is a lot of money out there for digital. Uh, and you just have to uh, throw off those shackles and be creative. Mm. I mean, the, a really simple example as well is everyone has a blog. Like, there's a blog about everything. There's a blog about shoelaces. There's a blog about, like, I don't know, whatever. But that's a good in indication of... I don't think the space is getting narrower, I think it's only getting wider, but that means the competition's getting fiercer, of course. And I think that comes down to, you know, content and your ideas and creativity and how good you are at that in terms of bringing in your audiences. So you create a little niche for yourself and you stay relevant. And I suppose there's the, there's the more the more phenomenon, the, the more news sites there are, the more people actually want to embrace and, and, uh, and read news. And it's, it's not the same pressure of reading another daily newspaper. More questions? Yes, over here. Um, there's been obviously a lot of talk about media monopolies in Australia, you know, with the Murdoch and um, uh, Fairfax. I was just wondering how important you think citizen journalism is in terms of actually giving control of information um, and breaking that away from, you know, just corporations and companies. It's <laughs> a good, it's a good question. Um, I think I'll go back to what I brought up earlier in terms of you know, creating a voice for people that don't otherwise have a voice. I think it's incredibly important in that regard. And if you think of you know, situations where people are living in, under dictatorships, they don't have freedom of speech, they don't enjoy that freedom that we do here, it's incredibly important in those spaces because without it, they wouldn't have a voice, essentially. Um, different story in Australia, I guess, because of the comforts and the liberties that we do have. Um, but yeah, if, you, if, you t if you're looking at situations like that where, you know, something's breaking in your hometown and you've got a little device where you can say, this is happening right now, it's, it's happening in real time and you're sharing that with the entire world. 
So citizen journalism in that regard is incredibly important, not just for the world, but also for us journalists to continue, you know, continue that story on and take it from where it started and amplify it. And I wonder, are we seeing stories that uh, are going nowhere in the traditional, what we would think of as traditional media, but then because of citizen journalism, social media, they finally break into and become quite large uh, mainstream stories. I'm thinking, for example, the Bentley blockade is a, an example of that. Do you see many stories like that? That you um, kind yeah, of I mean, that take out of social media or take out of citizen journalism and make all it more, more mainstream? Yeah, all the time. We're doing that all the time. Mm. And, I mean, it's such, it's, it's such a core part of what we do at The Guardian is just seeing you know, what, what, what are people talking about or what are people protesting about. You know, student protests to the London riots to anything like that. You know, you have a group of people who feel very passionately about something and they want to talk about it, and we want to pull those voices onto our side. And um, as much as we can do that, I mean, I still think we can find better ways of doing that. But it's great that we live in a world where people can tweet a journalist or get in touch with us directly, or where we can set up a poll or um, you know, a thread. You, you know, comments are so important to us here at the Guardian. We, we kind of really engage below the line, we have moderators reading what people are writing, and we also post articles where we're asking people's opinions, you know, this has happened in the news, what do you think, what would you do in that situation? Yeah, we, I mean, we have a whole segment on our show called I'll Take That as a Comment, and basically it's just aggregating and pulling comments from YouTube videos. So you take a huge, you know, you take a huge issue of the day, for example, that is flooded across the news, and all of a sudden people feel like they're part of that story because you're putting up a comment that they posted on someone's YouTube video. That's another example of you know, how information from the people is becoming more and more important in terms of how it fits into the news cycle. Yes, at the back. Um, hi, this is probably a question for The Guardian. Do you ever um, get opinion writers who say, I will, or an op-ed writer that will say, I only want to publish my piece if you close the comments off. I don't want any comments. Okay. And, and how do you respond to that if you do? So a couple of things. So the firstly thing is that luckily I don't have to deal with a lot of our opinion writers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very grateful for that. And secondly, um, they don't really get a say in whether or not their, their comments are turned on if it's a comment-free article. If it's a comment-free article, I mean, if you turned off the comments on comment-is-free, you you're kind of defeating, defeating the purpose of, of what that, that article's for. Well, they're moderated. Like, you know, a lot of publications would, well, almost every publication would moderate comments purely because you don't want things that are derogatory or... Yes, that's right. There are some writers who don't invite comments and there are some people who have a debate about the value of comments uh, in all circumstances as well. Uh, but perhaps we don't have time for that for the for the comments debate uh, uh, today. Uh, would you please thank uh, our panel, Hal, uh, Patrick, and Andrew. Uh, and if you like stories and knowing about uh, journalism and stories, then you should save the date for the Walkley Storyology Summit, which is happening in Sydney this year from December first to fourth. Thank you all very much, and I'll see you all later. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.